Hey everybody, Mark D, IT guy, dad, and generally bad movie nerd. And today we're going to be doing something medium different, maybe. Or maybe it's the same thing, just less or at a, you know, attacking in a different direction, so to speak. I know that you've seen the title of this episode. I also wonder if I'm clipping, I don't think so. I'm going to roll with it. It looks like I am, though. Ooh, it looks like I am. That looks like a very flat... Yeah, there it is. There's the clip. All right. Let's start over. Hey, everybody. Mark D, IT guy, dad, and generally bad movie nerd. And today we're going to be doing something a little different. I know that you saw the title to this episode. But I'm actually not going to talk about that right now. I want to talk about remakes for a second. And the reason that I am talking about remakes right now, and pardon me while I kind of numerically try to check these levels, these levels are too low. Cool. Third time's a charm. Hey everybody, Mark D, IT guy, dad, and generally bad movie nerd. Can I still clip? All right, now I'm good. And here we are. I want to talk about remakes, right? Remakes are, and to backtrack a little bit, the reason the audio's been a little goofy, uh, just trying different stuff, just trying different setups, trying to put myself in a different place. I found out through kind of experimentation that this one audio interface is not actually dead. I thought it was dead. I thought it had died with my previous computer had plugged it into a MacBook Pro, and it just gave, like, re weird random squeals. Well, that same MacBook Pro is the one that I used to record uh, the episode on Tulane Blacktop, and I was getting that random-ass static, and I think, I, I think it's actually the MacBook Pro that is going bad, and, and this is just an unfortunate coincidence, because everything looks great so far here on my computer. But... I mean, there's also some nuance in there. I was recording into a Dropbox folder, and it was syncing over Wi-Fi, and it could have, I don't know, maybe chunked it up or something at the time. Neither here nor there. Going back to remakes. As I'm not going to remake the intro, I've remade it three to four times already. Remakes are really interesting, and the reason that I selected the movie for this episode that I actually don't want to talk about or I should rephrase that I wanted to talk about in a negative way but have lost the desire to do that. The movie that I don't now want to talk about is uh, Scarface, and I heard that it was in plans to be remade. And the person who is looking to remake Scarface is an interesting uh, filmmaker, and, that is, and I'm going to murder this name because I've never actually said it aloud before. It is Luca... Guadagnino. Guadagnino. Hey, because he's Italian. Sorry for being stereotypically Italian. I know that my family is at least a little bit Italian, so I will at least a little bit be okay. Uh, Luca Guadagnino was the mastermind behind the excellent and very skillful remake of Suspiria. And by remake, it's a little more than that right? And I think that's one of those 
those things that that really add to its appeal and to its flavor and and you know to overall critic vibe right when you remake a movie in when you remake things usually it's like an updating or an improvement like if it was a program you remake the program what are you doing to improve it you improve speed maybe or you add support for you know high dpi displays widescreen support maybe like remaking starcraft blizzard famously has remade starcraft and i think they're working on warcraft 3 and they have you know cutesy names for it starcraft remastered but what they did was they brought this legacy kind of thing into the modern age to have you know better compatibility you get observer mode instead of having to have a player in the game float a command center to the corner you get more but it's the same game their whole appeal was this is the same game and in movies nobody wants necessarily the same movie right we saw that i think it was spike lee that made the uh, old boy remake and everybody hated it and when I, I i haven't seen it obviously i saw original old boy i liked it quite a bit um my first korean movie i believe that i had ever seen very fun very fun friendly violent tale about revenge in a very long term wrapped up in a, a cute little mystery there apparently from what i've read the american one was kind of a shot for shot remake and i was like okay why does everyone hate it and i think that a lot of people hated it because it was a shot for shot remake because why bother if it's a foreign film put some fucking captions on it and we will watch it as is we not being the american public the american public seems to hate reading but we you know people who are are really into movies we you and i who are listening to this right now i would be listening to it because i would be hearing it back probably we would watch it because of its merits it is a good movie it has a interesting story plot you know uh, uh, symbolism themes so on and so forth action if even if you look at like the raid redemption which is maybe one of the most meathead widely praised movies that that we have which is foreign and that, that movie actually did get a remake so it's very interesting so now we'll, we'll we'll bring that full circle now if we can take the time to talk about dread right and dread is a movie that i liked starring carl urban it is a, a comic book movie technically of the judge dread franchise and it is modeled heavily extremely heavily after the raid redemption it's a little different because there's a, an existing character of judge dread and you know he's got his like uh, junior officer with him and things like that but it is very very similar it is a little bit more of a reimagining in those thematic terms but you know the setting is very similar is massive uh housing building and the idea that there's like a, a gang lord or drug dealer lord that essentially owns the building and there's immense violence like uh perpetrated throughout the movie and it's um 
classist in, in certain respects, but it comes from a different culture, so it doesn't translate one-to-one to American culture, uh, but they kind of, they, they figure that out a bit, and I, I think Judge Dredd was actually English, if I'm not wrong. Um, but I'm off, off the dome here, so ignore that if I'm wrong. Congratulate me if I'm right. You know, but they, they kind of frame it in like the, the cops and, and, and poor people kind of thing a little more, I think, for the the more Western audience, since this was initially an Asian movie, I believe from Malaysia, maybe, or the Philippines. I'm not 100% on that either. I didn't look it up. I haven't looked anything up. I've looked up zero things. So I should cut that out and put this at the, at the beginning. I have looked up zero things, but I, I didn't. So that was a bit of a reimagining, but not much. If you've seen both movies, you're like, yeah, bro, that's that's the same that's the same movie. And I'm not gonna argue. I mean it's it's very similar. But when you watch Suspiria and a million and one percent, you should watch Suspiria. I remember watching Suspiria, I was at a conference. I was at a technical conference and I was out for the week. And I remember watching Suspiria in my hotel room, and it shocked me. Uh, Suspiria, the original, which is like 1974, 76, uh, Dario Argento, right? That movie positively shocked me. I watched it because I knew that there was a Suspiria remake coming out, and I finally was going to get around to watching these, uh, I think it's Giallo is the the pronunciation Italian really throws me for a loop because I want to pronounce pronounce things like they would be pronounced in Spanish. So I think they're Giallo films, and Suspiria absolutely floored me in a lot of cinematographical respects. Fucking floored me, like wow. I'm still shocked. It's still breathtaking. But it's a very short movie. I think it's less than two hours, maybe. And, you know, it's got some shit in there about witches. Uh, which, sure, um, pretty cool. And it's a ballet school. And it's interesting, definitely. But Luca and I... God. Guadang, Guadagnino, right? Luca Guadagnino expanded elaborated just opened up just made his remake of Suspiria not only beautiful not only breathtaking cinematographically but just uh you know story-wise like this bigger just more just so much more and it's a long movie and there is a lot behind it thematically that Maybe if it existed in the first kind of more sparse movie, didn't quite get communicated through. It's kind of like um, if you've seen, again, sidetracking hard. If you've seen the producers, the original and the one with, uh, with, with I think, Gene Wilder and then the, the newer one with Nathan, Nathan Lane and, and Matthew Broderick, of, of which I like both, but I think I like the, the Nathan Lane one better because Nathan Lane is just like this massive comedic force and it has Will Ferrell and Will Ferrell fucking kills in that movie. 
the director of the play whom is hired just seems in the 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 19 i think 74 or 76 version of the producers he just seems like weird like 70s guy but he's supposed to be like super gay because the whole the joke of the producers fucking spoiler again stop listening here if you don't want to hear the joke of the producers the joke of the producers is that in the play springtime for hitler in germany the actor who plays hitler is incredibly gay like super duper gay then that means that hitler's gay and that's this whole like I guess emasculating thing, and it's it's a whole thing. But Mel Brooks definitely is with oh, well within his rights to make that happen, and he executed it, I think, very well. It was very fun how a play called Springtime for Hitler um, doesn't bomb because it's a complete uh, satire. I guess not even satire, but send up almost like deadpan send up of of Nazis by making Hitler just, like, un- incredibly gay, right? But in the 1974 version, dude is, like, hardly gay. He has, like, an earring, and he's like, whoa, no, oh, my God, whatever. And he just sounds like a fucking... God, jeez, uh, what's this guy from, from fucking Star Trek's name? William Shatner, brain farting left and right. William Shatner esque kind of speech pattern and that's apparently like turbo gay in 1970 whatever dude has one earring a gentleman is asymmetrical and has pauses in his speech he is clearly violently homosexual um versus you know the the 2000 whatever one or where he's very gay i don't even remember the actor's name right now but he is just super duper gay and it's extremely funny but that's kind of the thing with Suspiria. Perhaps the themes were present in the original, but maybe through the lens of, of time and also of culture. It was, it was made in Italy. Italy. <laughs> we're going to London, England. That's what I, I think of every time from Austin Powers too. I just said Italy. You know, maybe those themes were not as present to a um, um, contemporary audience or a contemporary viewer, such as myself. But the remake uh, makes makes these themes very, very clear, extremely clear, right? So not only is it a longer movie, but it is a bigger movie, bigger budget. It is is breathtakingly beautiful. The performances are great. And they have, okay, all right, I just stumbled upon this, and I've linked this in several places, and I think that no one who I've linked this to who was not already independently interested in this has watched this, but a gentleman by the name of Tim Rogers, formerly of Kotaku.com, and professional video game journalist for about 20 years now, I think maybe 21 at this point, has done a video review of the Final Fantasy VII Remake. And Final Fantasy VII, for those uninitiated, is a Japanese RPG for the PlayStation 1? PlayStation 1, yes. That was massive in its success. Just truly massive and still resonates today widely with an audience who is who can be particularly um, difficult to just 
be around, just hard to be around, how much they like the game. And he really liked the game too, and, and it has echoed throughout the adolescence of, of millions at this point, so much so that Square has decided to remake the game, but they didn't remake the game. They have such new technology that they reimagined the game a little bit, and they are even, at this point, maybe even changing major storylines. You don't know. But Tim Rogers has, on the, I believe, Action Button YouTube channel, and ActionButton.com probably has uh, a link to this, if they're smart. He's at 108 on Twitter, 108. And it's uh, Roman numerals for his Instagram. Just free plugs here. I love Tim Rogers to death. He has a three and a half hour, <laughs> or three hours and three, three plus hour review, video review of Final Fantasy VII that he spent 400 hours working on. And it is fantastic, but a lot of it goes into how they made Final Fantasy VII remake more than the original. They made it bigger. They made it different in important ways. That is what uh, Luca Guad <laughs> Guadagnino made. Guadagnino made of Suspiria. And that is why I recommend that. In all seriousness, I'm not telling you to watch a three and a half hour review. I'm telling you to watch Suspiria, the original, before watching Suspiria, the remake, because the the remake is just so much more that because of its scale and its its breadth and its just just mass, you would be knee jerk knee jerk your knee a knee jerk reaction would would be to to prefer it. Just like when comparing sounds, if you hear two sounds or two audio samples and one is slightly louder, it always sounds better, and that's why we're in this whole loudness war thing that exists i don't know i don't subscribe to the loudness war but i do know that it's there and that's why we have so many compressors and magic limiters and things like that you know six consoles and and all that i think i clipped on that too i fucked up man i fucked up but i'm gonna roll with it and like i said if i didn't say it before if the audio sounds different in different parts of this, that's because it is, because I'll, I'll probably have to stop soon and record something else or, or do something else and then come back and record later. So Guadagnino has the capability, Guadagnino, it's hard for me to enunciate that. I got to practice it. I, I think I did pretty good there. Guadagnino has the ability to make these things bigger, to improve upon them, to make them more powerful just stronger, just better. Fucking six million dollar man, that shit. Bionic woman, a fucking movie, you know, so to speak. And the news has now come out that he is working on a remake of the Brian De Palma film. Scarface, 1983 Scarface, 1982 Scarface. I, yeah, I, I mean, I should definitely look these things up. I should definitely be reading these things, but I'm, I'm not. I'm not. Scarface itself being a remake of a 1932 movie, Scarface. Uh, yeah, it's just, I haven't seen that one. I have kind of changed the format of this episode because, one, I have seen Scarface, the Brian De Palma film, many times. Uh, I've had a DVD of it since probably 99 or 2000. And it doesn't have any fucking special features to speak of 
So one of the reasons is that I've seen the movie a million times. Uh, another reason is that I don't particularly care to watch it again. I started watching it the other night, and I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't fucking feel like it. And then the third reason was that there is now a Blu-ray that comes with the 1932 Scarface, and it, it comes with a ton of extra features, and it looks awesome. But it's also 60 bucks, and it's 60 bucks because it comes with a statue that says the world is yours. And I want nothing to do with that stupid fucking statue. I don't. I think it's dumb as shit. And I wouldn't be against shelling out the money for a movie that I really want to get into and dissect and understand. But this is not that movie. I don't want that for this movie. Because I think the thesis here, finally, getting out of the intro, the thesis here is that regardless of what this movie was meant to be, I've, I've lived a life with what this movie appeared to be, or how this movie was interpreted, if you will. And this is, you know, subscribing to the auteur theory, where, you know, themes and, and, and things can kind of subconsciously or unconsciously be present in works of art and they are available for analyses and things like that. But this is almost like less an analysis of the movie and more an analysis of my relationship to the movie and, and the cultural impact that this movie has had around, around me personally. And this is unique to where I, I live, where I grew up, where I'm from, and all these things, and I don't know that they'll have a lot of impact on you, but this isn't your podcast. It's mine. So if you don't want to hear what the fuck I think, I mean, you started wrong. It's just called Mark's Movie Collection. You should have just not, not listened ever. Especially not 23 minutes into this fucking train wreck. But yeah, I think I'm going to talk about Scarface a little bit. <laughs> ah, Scarface. Fucking Scarface. What a son of a bitch. This movie's had a huge impact on... I don't know, like... The country? In, in a lot of ways, in different ways, depending on who you are and, and where you're from in the country. But I think the country in general, the country being the United States of America, right? The USA. It doesn't feel great saying that right now. And if you look at the release date of this, um, I think you'll fully understand why it doesn't feel great uh, to be saying that. But nonetheless, the United States. And I think a lot of people my age and and younger well i think there was like a, a almost a scarface marathon or something like that a scarface celebration on tv at one point because i remember going to school one day and everybody's quoting these quotes and i'm like what what movie are you talking about i was like bro you didn't see scarface it was on all weekend and I don't even know why that makes sense, but it kind of happened one day to the next, as I recall. And, um, you know, in the 90s, like, uh, I don't know if everybody's parents really 
super closely monitored what they watched, I would myself be judicious, I think, in depend you know, it it would depend heavily on, on my child at the time and where they're at in their headspace and things like that. I guess my parents thought that that I could handle it and I I mean I could, I suppose, certainly and, and we'll we'll get into that, but you know, everybody's parents thought the same and I don't know that it uh, translated universally that way but everybody saw that fucking movie so naturally I had to go and see that fucking movie and it was just Scarface quotes basically from then on out whatever day that was whatever weekend that was it was just Scarface quotes from then on out, and they were just good quotes because they were bad lines. I, you know, I guess. Um, there is one exception. There is exactly one exception, and I will hopefully remember to get to that at the end. See, I've written nothing down, so this is all up to my very scattered memory. Not like Sherlock Holmes. I don't have a mind palace or a woodshed that's perfectly organized. Quite the opposite. It's haphazard and random at best but i do remember um at one of those uh college kind of sale things definitely buying a scarface poster for my room i had a scarface poster for a long time i idolized the character of, of tony montana idolized is i feel so disgusted confessing that i just am disgusted with myself that I idolized, um, that I missed the point so hard, but I thought that, like, Tony and, and Manny Manolo, right? And Sosa, right? Sosa, the Colombian guy, Sosa, were so fucking cool. And Tony Montana with his fucking Porsches and his goddamn castle and... Manolo with his, like, Coco Plum House or Coconut Grove House, you know. That's just, it's a whole thing. It's a whole vibe. It's a whole... I think one of my main problems with the movie is that the movie missed the point. And that's very subjective, right? Because the way that a lot of people interpret this will depend on whether or not they missed the point. And if you go on Twitter, somebody who I follow was like, oh, top, top five gangster movies or top seven gangster movies... Obviously, Godfathers 1 and 2, Once Upon a Time in America, are huge. But then there was people like, Goodfellas, Casino, Scarface. And I was like, bro, I don't fucking think so. Like, Scarface and Goodfellas are almost the same movie plot-wise. And that's one of the reasons why I'm not into it. Uh, but I think that Goodfellas does it better. But I also think that the idolatry of Goodfellas is... um misplaced not unwarranted i think the movie's very well done i think scorsese is a, a tremendous filmmaker but people don't like goodfellas for the the craft and people definitely don't like scarface for the craft scarface was was widely panned if i recall correctly like trashed like people were like fuck you brian de palma you made carrie go suck a fuck 
he then went on to make Untouchables, with, which had Al Capone, which had a lot of motifs and similar to Scarface. Al Capone, I think, had the nickname Scarface. I did see Untouchables, um, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago, maybe like two years ago. And I was like, oh, wow, this is cool, because I mostly remember the TV show and not liking to watch it when I was younger because it was boring. And it would come on after like my, uh, my rom-coms, like Mad About You, because I would stay up all night. Because it's healthy for kids to do. And no, I don't have any weird problems with, you know, random memories or anxiety or anything like that. I'm good, bro. I'm good. I'm chill. Life is easy. But The Untouchables, the movie, was was pretty interestingly done. And in The Untouchables, the movie, he had a Cuban guy playing Italian. That is Andy Garcia. And uh, in Scarface, he had an Italian guy play a Cuban. That is Al Pacino. And Al Pacino, his accent, yeah, it's a, it's a thing. It's a thing. You know, Marta, hello. Like, all those bad lines that are so infinitely quotable. Hello, you know. And fucking, the best one is, fly, pelican, and it's a fucking flamingo. Al Pacino did the character of Scarface, no, or Tony Montana, I should say. No favors, but I don't think the script did either. I don't think that the filmmaking did because the filmmaking missed the point. I had read previously that Brian De Palma said that, that it was supposed to be an anti-drug movie. And holy fuck does it glorify drugs and violence and, and taking what's yours and being fucking um, a manly man. You know, I only got two things in this world. It's my pulse and my word. And I don't break up for nobody. You know? But there are some actual, like, stellar fucking stars in here, like, uh, I believe it's F. Murray Abraham. God, who does he play? But he's like, hey, tough guy, what you know, you know about cocaine? Tough guy, huh? Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely a, a, a rise and fall story. It's a story of an immigrant, it's an immigrant story, and I appreciate that, I appreciate the beginning, I appreciate the, the speech from Fidel Castro, you know, his famous no no necesitamos no lo queremos you know el el mariel like right the the mariel boat lift was definitely a huge event for south florida for dade county probably in particular and i mean like sure a lot of undesirables came but a lot of people came in total and that maybe changed the the landscape in the early 80s, uh, moving on, uh, there was also the cocaine boom. If you want to see a fun documentary, Cocaine Cowboys is very fun, and it is primarily about that. They even talk about, you know, the shooting at Dayland Mall and, and things like that. You know, Miami was a weird time. I, th I think it was like Sunnyland in the, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, which was the the gunfight that essentially created caused the FBI to invent the 10 millimeter. Uh, or, or to purchase the development of the 10 millimeter, you know, there's it, it, a lot going on. It's very exciting and all that. And and the movie does pay homage to that. You know, the intro scene, almost a body horror. Now the leg, huh? That's cool. But it missed the point. It's like when, if you've seen 500 Days of Summer, if you liked the movie, my hope is that you're like, oh man, Tom was. Tom was a grade A fucking uh, stage five clinger, double needy psycho. And Summer was really upfront about what she wanted. We see the movie out of, out of sequence through his eyes, through his memory. And then hopefully at the end, 
he 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 learns and he understands and it's like well you know here's autumn here's my my chance to be better that is the hope if you liked the movie that is your interpretation right if you liked the movie and you thought summer was just like a bitch like dude i don't know but fuck you a little bit not personal don't take it personal no offense but fuck you but a lot of people who didn't like the movie were like, no, Tom just, you know, gets away with it or whatever. Tom's just like, boop, 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 boop. It's like, no, like, I, I took it that Tom was a jerk. And he, he learned to understand that. Whereas people were like, the movie doesn't do a great job of, of illustrating that. And it definitely did not to them. Scarface did not do a great job of, of illustrating it to be a movie of any substance to me. Definitely didn't hit its anti-drug plot or anti-gang plot or anti-violence plot or any of those things. Fight Club? Another movie widely misunderstood in reading Chuck Palahiewicz, I don't know how to say his name, but in reading the author's words, he's like, you're not supposed to be a space monkey. Being a space monkey is bad, you know, but also don't be this fucking guy with the Ikea catalog at his house, you know, and this is me, the guy who has 90% Ikea furniture in his house telling you this because I don't fucking know what else to buy and really I'm not going to be troubled to research fucking 88 thousand hours of different fucking bookshelves with ugly fucking trims i'd rather just get something plain straightforward functional modern and affordable so not a plug for ikea but kind of a plug for ikea so you know movies can can miss their point or people can miss the point of the movie as well right living in a squatting i guess in a, a fucking dilapidated decrepit uh, that those are all true, but not the word I'm looking for. Condemned, you know, house is is kind of Fight Club, and it's like, hey, you probably shouldn't. And he needed to create like a whole secret, separate identity to kind of, you know, make himself do that and to be okay with it and and all these things. And yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. But Scarface is in there in my book. It's just it's like it people miss the mark on it, and I think. This one's more the fault of the film than, than the fault of the people, per se. Rap music, real big where I'm from. New York rap music, any rap music with any Hispanic people, real big where I'm from. And uh, universally, there is idolatry for, for the character of Tony Montana. Every barbershop in Miami has like a school. Not everyone. Not the one that I go to, but I mean... The stereotypical chintzy fucking garbage, or not garbage. I'm 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 being very 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 judgmental here, and I just I have a lot of pent up rage about this subject. I, I don't I don't want to call anybody and be like fuck you specifically. But like, if you have a Scarface poster and you're like above twenty one, or if, if God forbid you have like a framed inlay with like the handguns and the, the cocaine or whatever. Or any of that, like, fuck you, dude. Like, you gotta grow up a little bit, because that's not what the movie's about. Like, that guy got fucking shot, and he alienated and murdered everyone. He never had love or trust. Like, these are not desirable. Um, But for, for young men, young Hispanic men especially, uh, this is a figure that is that is revered. And I don't I don't agree with it at all. In fact, I'm, I'm fucking mad about it. I feel like it's contributed to a lot of bullshit like i genuinely think that the movie was supposed to be an immigration movie or a you know immigration reform movie or you know a movie about immigration um 
kind of using the plot of the 1932 movie as a backdrop because the 1932 movie is very similar in that there is a gangster and he does get paranoid and weird and, you know, kills off all his friends and then dies. But, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it missed that mark too. Like the, I love the opening scene. Um, accent aside, it's kind of like the, the, the circle pan thing, like Escape from New York. It's almost like a Carpenter movie, like he's Snake Plissken, right? Like he's the hero, right? And I think that's part of the problem is that they set him up they set up Tony Montana in a lot of ways to be the hero. And I think that's why people feel that he is a hero, even though he is very much not. And we don't, you know, I don't, I don't think it's clear to be like, well, there's a systemic issue or, or not. Like he goes to freedom town regardless, but in going to freedom town, he, he kills, you know, like he says, he kills a communist for fun, you know, which that, that, that communist, um, I'm not going to get into it. Uh, but he kills somebody and he gets hooked up with this, this bad element, essentially. And I don't know if that was supposed to be like the, the aha, the eureka, the wake up moment. But it wasn't. No, nobody got that. It wasn't, it wasn't heavy. Uh, it was heavy in that it was, it was epic. Like um, you see Stephen Bauer, Stephen Bauer, actually a Cuban uh, guy, Cuban refugee, maybe an expat, a Cuban-American. Uh, he actually spoke uh, pretty, pretty good English uh, already at that time. He was previously on a sitcom, which uh, was available on, on you know, public broadcasting in Miami, which I bought the DVDs for. I, I donated like 80 bucks, but I have the DVDs to the show. And I will play you a clip of that theme song right now because it is just fucking the best. And it is called Que Pasa USA. And in Capasa USA, his name was not Stephen Bauer. It was Rocky Echevarria. And I have a hard time rolling that R. It, he's, I think, a very talented, funny, obviously physically attractive actor. And, and when he's um, kind of in the undershirt with the knife and he goes, Revenga! And it's a very epic thing. It's, it's, it's in the, the backdrop of the riots again. And if you look at the release date for this, you future listener, you'll be like, ooh, this is maybe weird feeling. Uh, but they go and they chase down this, you know, essentially not quite war criminal, but, you know, just about war criminal. Yeah, it's a whole thing. It's a whole scene. But don't talk to me about Che Guevara also. I'm not, I'm not into that discussion either. It doesn't come up in the movie, and I think that it doesn't come up in the movie, again, because the movie doesn't uh, attach itself to, to that culture. It could have been any culture, basically. He uh, could have been, I don't know, uh, from fucking Afghanistan, you know? no idea so maybe that's why the movie didn't hit on that cylinder because it just didn't hit hard enough and it became really easy i think not very easy in comp comparison to other countries it became very easy in the in the ensuing years for cubans to become residents and, and citizens and things like that and I don't know exactly how to attribute that or, or why that is or, or what the case is, but but it is a thing that happened. I don't know if this movie helped, hurt, or was completely ineffective in, in any way, shape, or form. But you know, there was a lot of a lot of racism 
uh, especially at the time, Miami did experience a lot of white flight, and I'm sure that the, you know, Dade County in general, and I'm sure that the Mariel Boatlifts uh, did not assist in that at all, uh, period, whatsoever. Uh, prior to that, there were some, you know, programs in place because people from Cuba were considered political prisoners or, or political refugees, right? So it's a whole different thing. But <clears throat> as my child refuses to change his diaper, hold on a second. Let's see if I can sort this out. But yeah, it was a pretty big deal. And it was hugely impactful on culture, you know, a few years after, you know, I don't know if that, that TV thing was like a, a, a nationwide thing. It, it must've been because a few years after, or if it's just like the 20 year rule, but shortly after, uh, Grand Theft Auto Vice City came out. Now, Grand Theft Auto 3 was a huge achievement in technology. It was an open world. It was 3d. You could run around and do Grand Theft Auto things, which you could always do, but there was voice acting and, and there was more. And this is, you know, through technical advancements of the, the PS2 DVD technology to store more stuff and all that graphics, etc. I believe Grand Theft Auto 3 was for the PS2. I know that I had Vice City on the PS2 and Vice City is the one I want to talk about because Vice City is very much couched in this nostalgia for the 80s but for scarface in a huge way um even though you play tommy versetti voiced by uh god what's this guy's name <laughs> ray liotta right that's his laugh that i i just did uh voiced by ray liotta which has subsequently caused rockstar to never use professional voice actors or professional actors in in their work ever again because he was such a fucking nightmare to work with from what i understand so even though you're you're some white guy named Tommy Versetti, um, the romance, a lot of it is based on the movie Scarface, very specifically. There are references to it. There's a whole Hispanic aspect. You can get uh, what's called a Cuban Hermes. A Cuban Hermes is a car. There's a whole gang of Cubans. There's Haitians. All those things, which are, are all very Miami things. There is a, a large population of Haitians uh, in Miami. There's a, an area called Little Haiti. and So it's in rockstar fashion is very studied and and very authentic in a way but also very commercialized in a way that's one of the reasons why i think grand theft auto 5 was perfect is because it's about la which is the most probably commercialized place in the world i would assume so you know, Grand Theft Auto 3 had that whole thing and, and you could go hot rod your mercury and put spark plugs in the exhaust Right, you you press I think the left trigger or whatever, and you shoot uh, fire out the back. And you had hydraulics on it. It's a whole thing, but that was a huge cultural impact. Um, you know, the movie got exported. I have a friend who who's from Trinidad, and he came to Miami in '99 ish, or maybe earlier. But he's like, yeah, when when I came here, I thought all of you were like Scarface, right? And I'm just like, no, man. No.
kind of touching back on on video games, there's something interesting that I did discover in the maybe I don't know thirty minutes of internet research that I did for this. I, I I said I didn't research anything, but I started to, and that's when I figured out. Yeah, I don't really want to do this. Um, there's a there's a Scarface game uh, that came out. It's called The World Is Yours. It came out in 2006, I think, for like Xbox and PS2 and what have you. And um, it's it's really interesting because it begins with the end of the movie, right? The mansion fight, except um, you play as Tony Montana and you survive. And that then continues the game. The game is essentially a continuation of the movie. And I'm sorry, I'm not farting. I'm just moving around in my chair anxiously. Yeah, you, you kill everybody in the mansion and... You, you gain meter, which is like a rage meter, and when you build a blind rage, you become invincible, which is not... I mean, in, in the movie it was drugs, but you can't have that in a game because then kids will do drugs to be invincible, I would assume. But also, as you kill people, you get balls, a balls score. It's just, it's really... um It, it tells you exactly where you hit people. It's really this... um this extremely uh, gratuitous kind of gamification of, of, of violence and um, it was um, think of American Psycho, right? I, I misunderstood the movie of American Psycho a little bit uh, but when I read the book it was very solidified to me that he didn't um, he didn't see other people, right? You, we see other people in the movie because there are other people and they're in the movie. I thought he just described them because he liked to talk about people's clothes, but um, in the book he does not describe people. He only describes their their clothing, their um, illustration of wealth in a way, or their, their taste or their style. Like the thing with the business card I thought was just like a, a professional thing, but it's, it's much more than that. It is um, possessions as an identity almost. And that's definitely American Psycho and American in the eighties, and you know I think in a way that Scarface kind of had the same thing where it's it's going for this kind of eighties um, excess, like the eighties are too much. Um, but then this game comes out and it's like too much is not enough. We need to go more. It's really interesting because I was I was shocked. I was disgusted by this, and I mean, you know, I'm a I'm a I'm, I'm not even going to use the G word, but um. You know, I, I drank a lot of G Fuel when I was a kid, and I'd, you know, shit talk people, you know, on online constantly, you know, as we do when we're good at games, and then when we get older and we get bad, probably through, like, uh, neuropathy or something, you know, we're just like, oh, you gotta chill out, um, but in general, I don't behave like that anymore, because I've grown up, I understand that the people on the other side of the screen are, are people and, and have you know, some measure of empathy. I do still fucking love winning, though. Uh, but that that's... That is the name of, of the game of competition in general, is winning. So that's not really the issue here. Winning is fine, but just the excess, the, the gratuity of it. I was disgusted by this because, you know, in the first level, you're just you know, left kidney, right arm, all that stuff. And it's kind of an over-the-shoulder thing, like it feels like a SOCOM game. 
but then they they go out into the open world and it's a bit more like Grand Theft Auto e. But I didn't even I didn't even get that far. Um, yeah, it's purported to be a send up of the movie, like heavy quotation fingers. Um, but it doesn't feel like it. It feels like it really loved the the vibe of the movie and it just wanted to keep the party going. Um. If it was a send up of the movie, I, I think that it would be it would have jokes, not just more violence. And uh David McKenna, right, who was a screenwriter for Blow and American History X, which are, are very edgy movies, right, if you wanna use the E word. He was brought on because um they wanted to emphasize the and I quote, over the top humor he perceived in the character of Tony Montana. And um, that's not ever a thing that I perceived in the movie. I never perceived Tony Montana as a humorous character. And then, um, you know, they asked him, like, hey, you know, why, why'd, you, why'd you change the, the end of the movie to be the beginning of the game or whatever? And he's like, uh, get a life, it's a fucking game, was his response. But then it also comes out that he initially wanted to... Um, he wanted to start out the game with Tony Montana having a discussion over the movie rights for his life. And then his dialogue would be something like, um, you know, because, um, you know, in, in, in production development, studios definitely have an idea of how they want the movie to go. So they tell him, you know, well, Tony Montana has to die at the end. And he's like, why that bad guy always got to die in the end? Fuck you, now you die. And then he pulls out a machine gun and blows them all away. And escapes the mansion. But, um... Yeah, that didn't go over well, but then he says, but the whole thing, it's a game, it's a joke, end quote. And again, I'm not seeing the fucking joke, my dude. Like, um, I'm not seeing the joke. I'm, I was shocked. I was shocked from reading this that, that it was thought to be perceived as a joke. I, I took the, the premise of an immigrant coming to this country as serious. I took the, idea the theme that the american dream is is toxic in a way or or when taken that far or whatever the case is i just like the 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 80s excess right was bad it was stupid he's like you know focused on a woman because she is something to be uh owned or, or achieved but not for her you know like worth per se it's there's a lot more to the movie than it's a joke. And I, you know, again, if you want to be offended, keep listening. If you don't, if you don't think you'll be offended, keep listening. But if you will be offended, hey, just stop now. We're good. This is almost a non-episode as it is. Just, just stop now. My sinuses are just popping off right now. I can barely speak. I'm surprised you made it this long. And I thank you for it. I thank you for your support. But I think that to take this movie as a joke, you have to take the idea of somebody coming from Cuba uh, on, on the Mariel boatlift, a Marielito, if you will. Because there was already a, a significant Cuban population. Cubans have been coming to the U.S. since the, you know, 1959, I, I believe, basically. You know, for the, the, the political refuge and, and the whole uh, status in Cuba. So... 
without having that context or that involvement, if you're some guy in LA and you're just like, whatever, man, fucking ocean Mexicans, who cares? That's a joke, right? But as somebody kind of seeing it from the inside, as myself and, and so many other people, we're just like, it's not a joke. Like, this is a serious movie. It's It's wild. It's insane. And it's definitely... I never took it to be an aspirational movie. A lot of people did. Um, but I never took it to be a joke either. So having people acknowledge that it's a it's a joke and it's over the top and it's like a dumb movie is a weird feeling. But then at the same time, uh, somebody I follow on Twitter, and I can't fucking find it now. If, you, if you're on Twitter and you lose something, it's gone forever. I follow um, thousands of people. I never expect a follow back because my account is useless but somebody you know was like oh top seven gangster movies or whatever at that scarface fucking showed up and i was like no 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 so is it a joke or is it a top seven gangster movie or does it lie somewhere in between i think it lies somewhere in between i think it had an intent that was missed but i do not think that it is a top anything gangster movie it's very um plain and rote in its its plot i mean it's obviously it was a remake i think the remake inspired a lot of gangster movies subsequently that align along those those same alleyways uh goodfellas i think is a much better example of how to make the same movie roughly and goodfellas is allegedly based on a true story i'm not i'm not looking this up Pretty sure it's like based on a true story or some shit, but you know, the the mobsters get crazy and this dude's trying to get made, but he's actually a fucking jerk off and he gets killed. Spoilers for Goodfellas. Uh, but you could still watch it if you've never seen it. If you like gangster movies, if you're like, ah, oh, I want to love gangster movies, yeah, go fucking watch Goodfellas. What the fuck are you even doing with your life? That's the first one you should have seen. It's the first one you should have seen because it's more, more show, more pomp than The Godfather's 1 and 2. I think the Godfathers 1 and 2 are these wonderful, beautiful uh, productions that take their time and, and really illustrate change in character and things like that. But yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm confused about this movie. I'm genuinely confused. Because either it's a joke, or it's a, a top gangster movie. Really, I haven't seen any strong in-between kind of opinions uh from dudes right you know the movie definitely is is uh has a very chauvinist point of view and i think that's kind of the point in a lot of ways um this you know before we had a word for it but you know this dude's fucking not okay you know he's got all types of personality disorders an inferiority complex the whole thing and I don't know if that's like a trying to magnify the immigrant experience or trying to compress it like all the way down, but I I don't really think that it spoke to people on the level that it was trying to. I think that there's a different uh, message there that got lost essentially in the the decoration. You know, the movie did have some some rock and like stereotype eighties music though, like push it to the limit. I still fucking think about 
probably once a week. Um, Rush Rush for the Yayo. It's a fun, like, uh, disco track. You know, there's there's things. Um, you know, I don't really recall being in love with sets, or I don't recall any interesting camera moves. I've, I've seen the movie a lot, but, you know, nothing really um, jumps out at me. I, I, I would like to talk about maybe the, the setting of the initial uh, horror movie, Chainsaw Murder, which is that South Beach was like garbage uh, in the early 80s. South Beach was trash, and they were about to bulldoze the whole fucking thing. And there are these wonderful historic uh, Art Deco buildings that have stood since the, the 20s and the 30s. And there's still the Art Deco district now. Uh, I talk a little bit about that in my episode on Mask of the Phantasm. Batman, uh, the animated series, notoriously, or, or famously, I should say, having the Dark Deco art style, which I am a thousand percent, I hit the fucking cable, which I am a thousand percent in love with. So, you know, it was interesting to see a South Beach with very minimal traffic and just kind of old people sitting around. Um, anything on that part of the beach is like a million bucks right now if it's a, a home of some type. It's just, it's wild how drastically that had changed, uh, you know, through the late 80s into the 90s. It was really revitalized, but economically it's just like crazy. You know, I took some notes on the opening scene, too. Um, the opening scene was interesting because it starts out and, and, and kind of his scar is, is in frame almost all the time. And it's like, is he lying all the time? Is that a representation? Because the camera's panning around him. And the way he turns his head as to who he's talking to kind of keeps it in frame for the most part. There's a couple parts where it isn't. Um, you know, there's a lot of blocking in the scene with the, the cops, the, I guess... You know, Border Patrol, I would assume. You know, he starts out, I, I believe, uh, without the scar. And as soon as he turns and starts talking, you see the scar. And I think that's, you know, representative of, of the characters. This is, he is Scarface. This is a physical deformity that kind of uh, represents the internal emotional deformity of the character. You know, there's a, a lot going on, and, you know, they're, like, fucking interrogating him, and, you know, they see the, the tattoo on his hand, which is a heart with a razor blade, I'm, I'm pretty sure, and, you know, I'm, does, is that also just representational? I don't know what that would mean, because uh, they're like a pitchfork, some kind of assassin, but he doesn't have a pitchfork, but he kills plenty of people, so is it just that his heart is, is damaged, that he's a sociopath, in a way? Is he... Uh, prototype Patrick Bateman because I think that American Psycho was written in like 86-ish so is he is that what that means that he has no empathy no emotion he's emotionless he's cold because kind of in a way he is but in a way he isn't because uh, he goes on these like rage rampages kind of thing where he just fucking freaks out he gets mad about something he freaks out that's why he kills his best friend and the only person that he could trust Omar also is F. Murray Abraham's character's name. Big guy, tough guy, Chernobyl game. Omar had a more convincing, I think, accent than Al Pacino.
Yeah, also noted that the, you know, when they kill the, the communist guy in the camp or whatever, um, who got thrown to jail later because he probably fell out of favor with, you know, the, the established power. Uh, that's kind of like Nazi hunters a little bit, and Al Pacino's in the show Hunters now. So, that's interesting. I think that was genuinely a thing, though. I think that actually happened. It's just a lot lower key. But, yeah, I... um. I do want to talk about the best line in the movie. There are a lot of bad ones, and they're not limited to Al Pacino. There's just plenty of bad lines, like uh, Manolo when he's delivering the the cocaine and the money to Frank. You know, he's like, "Oh, I heard you caught one on the job," and and Manny's like, "Yeah, I run out of bullets like an asshole," and you know, appending uh, uh, <laughs> like an asshole to anything is is kind of a meme. Uh, that I have with my friends. Um, you know, something very plainly stated, like an asshole. That's the best, uh, especially when people are fucking up. But, you know, uh, F. Murray Abraham also had, cheaper do 50 bucks. You know, like, that was a great one. Uh, that sounded more Mexican, my impression. Uh, F. Murray Abraham did a, a pretty all right job of, of, of doing somebody of Hispanic descent who had... Um, you know, so gains some uh, pr proficiency with the English language. I would assume that he lived in New York and probably hung out around, you know, Puerto Ricans and other Cubans. Um, New Jersey, New York, also very uh, populated with Cuban community. So it's not impossible to think that he actually just knew people that kind of talked like that. And that was a better model than fucking, I don't like Colombians. Like, fuck that guy. Not fuck that guy. Just fuck that accent. But Manny uh, has the best line in the movie. And it's right after, or right before they meet Omar, maybe. Yeah, it's right before they meet Omar. And they're they're working at, you know, La Cafeteria. There's a little cafeteria with a window across the street as a club. I think this was filmed in L.A. I've looked into this before because I'd love to know just where that was. Um, I think it was filmed in L.A., but the building... Is very evocative of of Miami's uh, architecture. Miami was kind of has like phases of expansion, and then there's certain buildings that were, I guess, built in the, the late '50s, early '60s, maybe that all kind of look the same. So I'm sure if you found a similar place in LA of around that time frame, you know, maybe '40s to '60s, um, they'll have the same vibe. The the cafeteria, right, that I'm talking about, the cafeteria will have like a, a serving window. And there will be outdoor like seating along the perimeter of the building and there will be like windows they call it la ventanita where you can buy coffee and things like that the small window or diminutive window as it would be and if you've seen newscasts from from miami on any uh kind of cuban um political things and they go out on the street to get reactions from people they use they usually go to one restaurant which is uh ostensibly called versailles but it's Versailles, right? Because it's it's in Spanish, but also in a Cuban Spanish, which is its own uh, kind of dialect or, or you know idiom, if you will. And uh, they always go to La Ventanita, right, with the camera crew, and they're asking all the old people, you know, what do you think of this and all that. So this is very appropriate. Um, it also feels very genuine that they're working at like uh, a cafeteria and they're. They're making sandwiches and, and washing dishes, and Manolo's a chef and Tony's a dishwasher. 
or whatever, or he's cutting, he's doing food prep, right? So it's like, oh, the fucking onions got my hands green, turning my hands green or whatever. And there's a, a guy at the window. And this has to be like a friend of somebody's because he's too prominent to just be like some extra Joe, but like he sucks. So he's just not in the rest of the movie. Doesn't have a bigger part. But uh, he gets a sandwich from Manolo, and he opens it up, and he goes something like, Oh, I say it, un poquito de carne, una lasca de carne, right? Like, give me another slice of meat or whatever. And this is, um, this is an attitude that is um, prevalent, uh, not 100%, but it's not uncommon to find in, in the South Florida area where where people just expect more and will, you know, uh, kind of brazenly ask for it. And that's not a thing that I grew up with. Um, so I take offense at it, but it's apparently just like normal, you know, squeaky, squeaky wheel getting the grease and things like that. And <laughs> Manolo turns to him and he's angry as shit. He goes, que mas carne ni mas carne, así viene sandwich meng, right? So what do you mean? What more meat? What do you mean more meat? That's how the sandwich comes, man. But I see, you know, sandwich Ming is one of those lines that I've really internalized. And it's like, don't be so fucking entitled, right? You got what you paid for exactly, you know? And I, I use that often because, um, especially in service industry, you get this kind of attitude so often where people are like, I have created this problem for myself or I exactly wanted this problem and now I need you to solve it for me. And it's like, no, no. I'm not going to solve that problem for you. You created it for yourself. That is what you get. Así viene el sandwich. That is how the sandwich is configured. You ordered it. That's on you. And that's why I don't work in food service. Because I would tell people to fucking shove it. But yeah, thanks for coming to my TED Talk on Scarface. I don't actually know how long this is going to be. But it's a lot longer than a non-episode should be. So maybe it's more of a rant. Maybe I'll, I'll reclassify it as a rant on Scarface. Because I've, I've, I've talked about the movie like not at all, it feels like. And Chico, if anything happens to that buy money, ay, pobrecito. Fucking F. Mary Abraham. He does a great job. He's in the movie for like six minutes, maybe. Does awesome. Uh, but I mean, he's a stellar actor. Amadeus, Homeland. I'll, I'll give you some some you know, tech stuff. It was filmed on Panavision cameras, four track DTS audio. John A. Alonso was the uh, cinematographer who was also the director of photography on Chinatown and motherfucking vanishing point, which is like my, I mentioned that, um, two lane blacktop can be very much compared to easy rider in, in my opinion. But I also think that, Vanishing Point deserves some measure of involvement in that, right? Where it's almost like a a triangle in a way of, you know, those triangle plots where you can kind of be fuzzy on one axis, but then on the other, and it's Vanishing Point, Easy Rider, and Tulane Blacktop. So that's cool. Um... You know, again, De Palma, Carrie, Untouchables, a bunch of stuff. Uh, I don't even know. I haven't even looked at this page, honestly. 
he's made some of the worst and some of the best movies, really. I think Scarface was nominated as like the worst movie of the year it came out. And uh, I agree that it's definitely not good, but it is a phenomenon. It is an experience. Like, I don't know. I just, I don't know. Well, let's, let's click a link here because I just feel weird leaving it at that. Oh, and the link goes to the wrong Scarface. Perfect. De Palma. Where are you? Oh, written by Oliver Stone, by the way, who did such writing. Wow, he took fucking the exact plot of the 1932 Scarface, basically. I just put, like, you know, 4% of our gross. It's not fucking penis. Like, I'm not thrilled with Oliver Stone's writing on this movie. De Palma is the son of a surgeon. Nice. Study physics. Cool. I would have loved to have studied physics. Yeah, I feel like he has... Uh, oh, he did the Black Dolly in 2006. I, I dug it. Oh, that's right. That is fucking right. That is so right. Oh. He did Phantom of the Paradise, which I haven't seen, but I've heard is fucking wild. He has a couple other fucking movies that I have heard of and haven't seen. Um, but he reprises or reprise his um, gangster movie chops in, you know, After Untouchables, obviously, Kevin Costner and, and all that, uh, Robert De Niro, so on and so forth, in 1993's Carlito's Way with Al Pacino. So 10 years after Scarface comes out, Carlito's Way, where Al Pacino plays a New York gangster, he's, I guess, New York Rican, and... Um, that movie has an appearance by John Logozamo that I actually love, and I believe Luis Guzman is in that movie, and that just... Luis Guzman makes me happy, and Community has validated Luis Guzman making me happy. So, take that for what you will. Um, but right after Carlito's Way, his next film, 1996, he launches maybe one of the best action franchises, and... If memory serves, I think that, um, you know, the initial origin film is, um, I, and I, I hate to use the best one, but maybe the most artistic one in the art of cinema, it is Mission Impossible. He has these killer Dutch angles and, and so much, and he's starting this thing fresh, so he is creating the tone for it mission impossible used to kind of be like a you know medium derpy like black and white you know your mission if you choose to accept it and he really updated it and and he made it hot really like you know tom cruise popped in that movie like the whole scene at the table with john void i think it's john void or he's like you've never seen me very upset or whatever and he puts the the weird explosion chewing gum on the table but it's like all dutch angles and it's kind of gangster i think untouchables also you know ventures into that because uh robert de niro's al capone is a truly unhinged villain uh in, in the most um literal sense i guess unhinged he's not even he's not even on a hinge at no point is he on a hinge uh literally yeah Mission Impossible 1, uh, I don't know that it's my favorite, but I don't know that it's anyone's favorite, but it's definitely a lot better than Mission Impossible 2. Wow. Um, and it's also a really good start to this, you know, tremendously huge franchise. 
So I'd actually like to watch that again. Black Dolly I liked. Apparently he's known for Femme Fatale. I have no idea what that movie is. He made Snake Eyes. I'm sorry. Um, Domino I never saw. But uh, he's got two movies that are announced that might be coming out. So he's still working. He's still working, so that's cool. Uh, he's obviously boys with uh, Coppola and, and Stone and Lucas. You know, he uh, is usually attributed with saying that Star Wars makes no fucking sense. And that's why they did the re-edit. And that's how we got the theatrical version of Star Wars, a.k.a. Episode 4, A New Hope. Because it was just called Star Wars when it came out, and Han shot first. Oh, and one quick extra thing that I realized as I was editing this. Um, I kind of dissed Oliver Stone's screenplay a little bit. And I just it came to mind now. Kind of, I had to stop, take a break, make a cup of coffee. Cup of coffee, man, yeah. Cream of the crop. Uh, make a cup of coffee. A cuppa, if you will. And I remembered Michelle Pfeiffer's character and how she is. And I quote, Chia Tiger, right? And Chia Tiger is kind of expressing Tony's attraction to her desire and we feel that this is coming from a very earnest place, like maybe he just really wants to um, have a, a relationship with a very beautiful and, and sophisticated white woman, uh, as it would be. And that goes horribly wrong. And notoriously, in the, in the bad guy speech that is quoted on more than a couple of rap albums, you know, he's like, Her womb is so palure. Check anyone how it killed me, man. And then, again, things being so polluted is also a meme among friends because it's just fucking ridiculous. But uh, she essentially is just drugged up and and messed up all the time and it's bad and, and she doesn't care and she hates him and things like that. But the, the parallel there is that I don't, I don't remember from when he's shopping for the Porsche where the, 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 the salesman is just such a fucking dickhead to him. Uh, or if he's in the, uh, the Cadillac as a cream puff, another meme, he's in the Cadillac convertible and he's like, well, how about a tiger drive around with me? You know, like tiger in his passenger seat and she ends up in the passenger seat and then in his like fame and the fame montage where he opens up the salon for his sister and all that stuff. It's like, wow, he got a tiger. And um, then when he's in the bathtub scene, the, you know, 4%, it's not fucking peanuts. Uh, the fly pelican scene, the bathtub scene also widely referenced. They talk about how the tiger hasn't moved in days and it's probably dead and things like that. And, and the tiger is very much an analog for Michelle Pfeiffer's character, whose name escapes me right now. But again, off the cuff, not going to look it up. How she is um, mistreated, essentially, um, kind of captured, owned uh, as a trophy at best. And it's really evocative and, and indicative of the kind of thought process that happens in, in Tony Montana's mind. But now is he also lying to himself? in a way as as we do as one does i don't i don't think it's too many people that would purposefully do that but then he also 
uh, lacks a certain amount of empathy. So I don't know if it's purposeful or or not. I don't I don't think so. I thought that he's kind of coming from a genuine place. He wants to have kids. He has this whole feeling about kids, and he doesn't want to kill kids, etc., so on and so forth. So, is now his own just character, his own ambition, his own greed betraying him, or has betrayed him at this point? Like, well past it, yet he still leans into it. Um, you know, they people call this a comedy, maybe, or, you know, maybe that, that one dude did. Fucking screenwriter of American History X. What a comedy, American History X. And, um, you know, I asked, uh, I asked my wife, I asked my wife, you know, would you call this a comedy? And she's like, no, but I mean, now that you mention it, like, I think that I can kind of contort, you know, like I can, I can believe people kind of going that way, but, you know, and then we, we talked about it a little more and she's like, it's kind of like Pulp Fiction. And I'm like, you know, Pulp Fiction. And she's like, well, you know, Pulp Fiction's funny, but I mean, like, Pulp Fiction is funny, but it's not a comedy, even when it is funny. Uh, you can laugh at a movie, it does not, you know, make it a comedy, so. Yeah, it's it's pretty, um, yeah. Yeah, but the, the Michelle Pfeiffer tiger parallel analog thing, good on you, Oliver Stone, good on you. I'm sure there's other stuff in there, I'm just... I don't. I don't want to watch the movie again. I just. I don't. I'm good. I'm. I'm basically good forever. Bye forever. <laughs> but yeah, that's it for me. I don't. I don't even have a plug right now. Just be nice to people. Be nice. Um. Yeah, that's it. That's all I got. Be nice. Yeah. Love the microphone? Yeah. Okay.